Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted July 28, 2017, we consider how the New Berlin, a center of government, business, and offbeat creativity, is threatened with becoming a victim of its own success, as reported in the new WPJ summer issue. We'll also spotlight other top features in that new summer issue, cover line Justice Denied. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants. Thanks, David. Not many of us give much thought to the 1962 Sino-Indian War, a short but furious clash over their Himalayan border, which ended with China widening its footprint there. In the U.S., the war got little attention, in part because it took place at the same time as the Cuban Missile Crisis. But while it may seem highly unlikely that a Russian leader would try to put missiles in Cuba again today, Chinese and Indian troops are right now staring each other down in the Himalayas in an arcane pissing match with nuclear consequences, potentially. The facts are almost laughable if they weren't so dangerous. A small piece of territory, poorly demarcated by, who else, British imperialists, is now claimed by both China and Bhutan. India backs tiny Bhutan's claims, and when Chinese troops were found extending a road in the vicinity last week, both sides rushed in military reinforcements. It's a timely reminder of the world we actually live in. It's a timely reminder of the world we actually live in. India, which counts China as its most important economic trading partner, risks millions of lives and billions of dollars in a mountain plateau that belongs to Bhutan. China, not intent merely to claim all of the South China Sea as its own, risks those same millions of lives and billions of dollars to build a mountain road no one really needs. What's really at stake here? National pride, of course, and the political egos of two rising Asia powers. The second answer is more tactical, China supplies Pakistan, India's real strategic rival, with weapons and intelligence, and India doesn't like that. India, in turn, increasingly has tilted toward the U.S. and recently held naval war games in the South China Sea with U.S. and Japanese warships. Yes, this is the world we live in. You may think all the nuclear threats melted away with the Berlin Wall, or at least were confined to nutcases like Kim Jong-il or Osama bin Laden. They didn't, and they aren't. They are with us every day in possible clashes over the world's highest mountains, in shoddily secured Russian arsenals, and in the potential for accidental launches or cyber-initiated crises in any nuclear nation. China and India probably won't go to war, but their ridiculous behavior should remind us all about the stakes in the nuclear age in which we still live. For World Policy On Air, this is Michael Moran. Listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Ich hab noch einen Koffer in Berlin. Der bleibt auch dort und das hat seinen Sinn. Auf diese Weise lohnt sich die Reise. Denn wenn ich Sehnsucht hab, dann fahre ich wieder hin. I Still Have a Suitcase in Berlin, Marlena Dietrich sang back in the 1950s, recalling the joys of days gone by, before the ruins of World War II and the Cold War's dividing wall. 
But even if the luggage of that lyric could be found today, the city itself would hardly be recognizable, with its modern high-rises, malls, cinemas, savvy startups, even Europe's largest train station, and also a funky, freewheeling spirit and artistic creativity that is, however, now threatened by the very success of Berlin itself. So writes transplanted American author and political analyst Paul Hockenus, a World Policy Institute fellow, in the new WPJ summer issue. His article, enriched by decades of living there, is headlined The New Berlin, Offbeat, Disruptive, and Imperiled. And we discussed it the other day for this podcast. Paul Hockenus, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks very much. Talk about the dreams and plans of developers and urban planners in the period right after the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. Yeah, well, um, the planners and the property developers and the politicos, you know, they had big plans to turn Berlin into a global financial capital uh, on the par with, say, you know, Frankfurt or London. Um, the idea was that East Berlin's signature Alexander plots you know, would be transformed into the Manhattan of Berlin, complete with a skyline full of skyscrapers and high-end offices and apartments. Uh, Berlin was going to host the Olympics, the Summer Olympics in 2000, and they were going to build a new airport as big as Frankfurt's. Those were the ideas at the time. As it happened, you write, very few of those first plans materialized. Why not? Oh, yeah. I mean, despite uh, repeated attempts to brand Berlin as a center of, of commerce and money, they never got off the ground in the 1990s. Uh, the deep-pocketed investors that had hoped to come didn't. Uh, Berlin's economy slumped badly throughout the 1990s. It was in part uh, a problem of unification. It proved much more difficult and painful than anyone had expected, but also because during the Cold War, uh, both uh, East Berlin and West Berlin had been economic basket cases. I mean, they were both highly subsidized and highly in debt. Uh, in West Berlin, I mean, almost all of its industry during the Cold War had fled to the highland of the, of the Federal Republic. Um, and in the East, uh, the former German Democratic Republic, the communist Germany, um, all of the industry basically went bust during the processes of unification and basically disappeared. So unemployment in the eastern part of Berlin was sky high. Um, and it was a result of people power uh, in the form of an organized protest movement against it that the Olympic bid failed too. So at first, those big plans came to nothing. But the very lack of major renewal at that point became a source of strength and growth. Talk about the ways of new residents, a new kind of resident who came and why. Yeah, well, I mean, post-wall Berlin became a hotbed of do-it-yourself creativity. Artists and artisans, uh, the electronic music scene, uh, free spirits, offbeat entrepreneurs, you know, they gravitated to Berlin to tap into the, the inventive uh, energy and, and, and take advantage of the, the wide open feral spaces that uh, Berlin provided. You know, little cafes popped up in hole-in-the-wall niches and other artists uh, took over abandoned breweries and factories and turned them into uh, nightclubs and art houses. It brought creative types from all over the world uh, to experience like the giant dance clubs and you know, just to do their own thing. You talk specifically about two crucial elements uh, that have enabled the city to thrive. My German is not good. Freiraum or free space, by which you mean the low cost of living in the crippled infrastructure of a crippled economy, but also Freizeit or free time. Why was time more free there at that point? 
okay, well, well, free space and free time were both absolutely crucial to the inspired subcultural scenes in East and West Berlin during the Cold War, as well as in the 90s after the wall fell. So just a bit about West Berlin. I mean, I lived in West Berlin in the 1980s. Um, I paid just $75 a month for a little hovel of an apartment in a back courtyard that I shared with a German guy. And you could even get cheaper than that if you were prepared to heat your apartment with um, coal and share a toilet out in the hallway with a, um, with a neighbor. Uh, there are a lot of those situations. Um, but the, by fire home, I don't mean just uh, low rent, but also the squatted houses. There were over 300 squatted apartment buildings in West Berlin in the early 1980s, and there were also a lot of squatted or improvised um, studio spaces. Or even just think um, of the Berlin Wall itself, you know, a wide open, 100-mile-long canvas that just about anybody could take advantage of, artists or whoever else wanted to paint something on it. Um, so that was all free. And as for Freizeit, or free time, um, in West Berlin, it was pretty easy living there once you got the hang of it. Um, you know, don't forget, West Berlin was the bulwark of the Western alliance. You know, it was, it was a highly important geostrategic uh, city for the West. It was its most advanced frontline position. I mean, in fact, uh, West Berlin wasn't even just on the front lines. You know, it was behind the front lines. Uh, some, some people might be too young to remember or know, but actually, you mean West Berlin was in the middle of East Germany. It was closer to the Polish border than it was the West German border. And so the West saw uh, West Berlin as a showcase of the Western world. You know, it was a glittering ornament to dangle in the face of, of the poor East Bloc. And so it needed people to live there, you know, in effect, to man the barricades of the West in the Cold War. But since most ordinary people didn't want to live in a, in a city that was surrounded by a cement-walled barbed wire and a hostile nuclear-armed nuclear enemy, you know, West Germany had to pay huge amounts of money to subsidize it. Uh, to get people to live there simply. And uh, once, once you got the hang of it, it wasn't hard to tap into those monies. I mean, I, for example, I was enrolled at uh, West Berlin's uh, chief university, the Free University. And tuition, of course, was free, and it supplied you with free health insurance, uh, cut-rate transportation, uh, tax-free work, and, and other freebies, too. It was very easy to get part-time work in Berlin. I mean, they, they needed workers who who they didn't have, even though there wasn't a lot of industry there, it still had a shortage of labor. I mean, I worked on construction sites. I worked as a wheelbarrow man. I stocked shelves in drugstores. I dug ditches, delivered mail. I built bleachers and, and other things, too. Um, and at one point, well, during one of these work stints, I looked at my bank account, and I noticed even more money was being paid into it. I, I couldn't quite figure out by whom or why, but I didn't say anything. But then I learned that in Berlin, all West Berlin, all income was topped off by the city at the rate of 11%. So, and automatically, without you signing any form or anything, an extra 11% of your income was added, uh, paid straight into your bank account. So that was how you were, how artists were able to, you know, have free time that they needed to think and create and um, to do their own thing. But you also write that the besides those benefits, the inconveniences of the city's division brought to it or bred in it uh, a populace more ready than most on the western side to seek change, to make change, to build a new life. 
Yeah, well, West Berlin did have, I mean, it had, certainly it had a lot of people who were native West Berliners or were somehow stranded there during the war. But also during the course of the 1960s, the student movement with the growth of the free university, a lot of young people came who were, say, leftist-minded. But probably, you know, one of the most important things is that a young man, a young West German man, could duck military conscription. Because West Berlin wasn't legally part of West Germany. It was run by the Allied, the U.S., the French, and, and British military commands. So all a young man had to do was get an address in Berlin, and he could dodge the draft. Um, and almost all the young men that I knew in Berlin were basically doing that, um, some as students, others doing, doing other things. Um, and, you know, the draft dodgers, they weren't all of one stripe, but they, 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 they tended to be left-wing. They tended to be critical of the West German government. Um, many were gay. Um, so, and also just because of the isolation itself, I mean, many people just came to Berlin to reinvent themselves. You could start a new in West Berlin or just be yourself, as, as David Bowie was uh, in the late 1970s when he lived in West Berlin. Was there a parallel subculture developing on the communist side of Berlin? Now, that's a good question. That's something not a lot of people know about. Uh, there was indeed, um, but it was, it was very different, although many of its manifestations, like you know, anarchist punk rockers or neo-Nazi skinheads or some of the other uh, Western subcultures, you know, they looked a lot like their peers in the West. Um, but it was different. I mean, for one, I mean, the underground scene there was really underground, as it was illegal and, and persecuted. Uh, I mean, since East Germany was a dictatorship, all, cultural, all culture and, and space was controlled by the state, or at least the regime tried to control everything. Uh, since it was impossible for East Berliners to you know, express themselves politically as you would in a democracy through free speech or free assembly or elections or assembly or whatever, uh, you know, many of the system's discontents turned to subculture, art, performances, make your own fashion, uh, you know, literature, lots of music. And this happened in abandoned buildings. It happened in you know, different country places where they had. And it also happened in Protestant churches where um, you know, the church lent outsiders and dissidents some, some free space and some protection from the state. Uh, so these are all strictly insider happenings spread by word of mouth. Um, I mean, I remember I went over uh, from West Berlin on several occasions because I had heard about this. It wasn't something a lot of people knew about, but I heard that I was told, you know, something is definitely going on in, in East Berlin. It's not, it's not dead, which a lot of West Berliners thought. I mean, most people in the West Berlin scene wanted to have nothing to do with East Berlin. They just thought it was boring and dull and nothing was going on. But I went over with some, some of my, my, my student coterie and, uh, you know, we could look for something and you, know, you couldn't see anything. There was nothing to be seen you know, because it was underground. But, I mean, the youngest generation, you know, found a close affinity to punk rock. I mean, punk rock's anger and, and the dark world view, the fashion, the ambiguous, ambiguous sexuality, the in-your-face lyrics, you know, they really spoke to some young people. It was a very small splinter of the, of, of the youth. Most went along with the regime, as they were told to do. But there were dissenters, and they picked up punk as critique. And this was really the most radical critique of the regime and the GDR society, and they took it and they ran with it. Um, and in contrast to the West Berlin subculture, you know, the stakes were high. Um, this was illegal, and you could endure uh, imprisonment, as some did, or you could be just thrown out of the country, as many more were. 
I mean, in, in West Berlin, the subculture was highly political, and that's one of the one of the threads that I think goes through all of Berlin's subculture, from the from the Dadaist movement between the wars all the way up to up to the the scene today. But in 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 the East, it was impossible to pry subculture and critical politics apart. They were one. And what happened when the subcultures of the East and West sides of the city collided after the wall came down? Yeah, well, um, the industrial ruins and the, you know, the decrepit uh, turn of the century housing in East Berlin was where East Germans and West Germans first met. It's where they first interacted and lived together for the first time. It was in the squats and in these art houses. Um, and after the euphoria wore off, it was also where the first uh, German-German or the inter-German tensions appeared uh, kind of friction that would you know, happen much later on a, on a much bigger scale in Germany as a whole. You know, they were called the growing pains. But first, first came the euphoria and, and the thrill of, of getting to know the other. Um, and it was really since the first time, since the, the early 1930s, that Berlin also immediately became an international city again. You know, artist groups and bands and freaks from all over Europe and America, too, you know, they heard about the party that was going on in the free space, you know, and they moved to Berlin to take part of it. Uh, one, one German, East German publisher who I know, he called, he called the year between the fall of the wall and unification, he called it the miracle year of anarchy. I mean, you could really do what you wanted to. The East Berlin police, for example, who had been the biggest bastards ever, uh, they were so rattled that they didn't dare intervene in what people were doing. Um, they didn't trust themselves to do so. And, you know, as a you know, there, was, there was basically a state of suspended law, and it, they, in a way, it kind of proved anarchists right, you know, giving, giving space and left to their own devices. You know, people won't steal or, or pillage, but rather create, and they created. It was a wonderful moment of creativity. Uh, you know, people set up their own studios. They turned wa old warehouses into art houses where art artists lived, even through, even through a really, really cold winter in 89-90 uh, with no heat in most of these places. Uh, East Berlin's theater immediately began doing uh, its own things with lots of experimental theater, I know that would never have reached the stage in, just, you know, not, not in East Berlin, not in West Berlin, nowhere. Uh, some of it was, was really great and some of it was really quite terrible, but there was just this opportunity to do it. And, you know, of course there was lots of partying going on too. It was a really but, exhilarating time and, you know, although there is this, this term, the, the, the miracle year of, of anarchy, I actually think I call it the miracle years of anarchy in the early 90s, I think all had this buzz uh, to it. Uh, for me, those years, the, the, the miracle years of anarchy ended one, one autumn night in 1992 when a friend of mine, a house squatter in, in the East, he, he was stabbed to death by, by neo-Nazis. And that's something that we shouldn't forget. Um, at this time, it wasn't only a time of, of, of kind of re revolution for, for the creative types and, and the left, but also there was a very strong far right in all of East Germany and east, in, east, um, in the eastern sides of Berlin. It was very strong. It bordered the places where many of the squats were, and there were, there were running battles between left and right all through the early 1990s, and many dozens of people died, and one of them was a friend of mine, Silvio Meyer. 
Uh, and I mean, just one last thing about the miracle years for for people who are in the techno scene or the electric music scene. I mean, the the, the anarchy lasted all through the 1990s. Um, the big techno clubs only started up in '91, and so you know their heyday was all through the 1990s. Beyond the art and the politics, you say the local energy and creativity also brought business. Give us some statistics on that. The sheer variety of uh, businesses that developed. Okay. Well, I mean. Over the 1990s, big business didn't come to Berlin. You know, but the city, the city became a, a mecca for, for urban culture of many different kinds and you know, ended up attracting even more creative types as well as entrepreneurs who set up clubs and galleries in their own small, quirky businesses. And there are a lot of um, you know, not only the musicians but the music producers and movie producers, uh, you know, designers, publishing houses. Some of them started up in Berlin. Others picked up from elsewhere in West Germany to, to be in Berlin because they wanted to be part of that buzz. Um, it was interesting, but by, by about 2002, uh, the creative sector had breathed uh, life into 18,000 businesses and had created 90,000 jobs. And that number doubled by a dec decade later. Um, and then... As this happened, and other newcomers came, including you know a vast uh, array of small offbeat startups, many which maybe would never have made it anywhere else, like Munich or Hamburg, where the rents were five or six times as much, and they were also inspired by Berlin's uh, creative energy and do-it-yourself transitions traditions. Talk about talk about the increase in tourism to Berlin that also followed. Yeah, well, the tourists came too, for better and for worse. Um, <laughs> it was interesting, but the generation of the 1990s and, and the aughts, you know, these younger tourists, they didn't come to Berlin for the opera or the theater. They certainly didn't come from its, for its hoch cuisine because there wasn't any. But they also didn't come for, for history. I mean, Berlin did have tourists coming to, you know, experience the, the Holocaust Memorial or... Um, historical, the historical exhibitions at the sites of the former centers of the SS, Hitler's shock troops, and, and the, the former uh, offices of the Gestapo, of the Nazi secret police. But actually, the tourist boom came from young people who wanted to check out the street art and dance in the techno clubs. There's a huge gay scene uh, tourism. Um, and you know, thousands of people on a Saturday night would pack into some of these do-it-yourself art houses that had been set up in you know old department stores or you know defunct factories. Um, you know, the divided Berlin hadn't been much of a tourist attraction at all. I mean, most people came to West Berlin wanted to see the wall, um, but Berlin became a huge tourist mecca, and today you know it ranks only behind Paris and London in terms of the number of, of tourists visitors each year. Uh, but, but, but the tourist boom changed Berlin too. I mean, the tens of thousands with their roller suitcases flooded the city. Um, you know, the sub, sub, subculture also meant money. And you know, by the tourists flooding it, it diluted by, by its very nature that the quirkiness and the, the inventiveness of the city um, you know, scenes that were once off limits to the greater public, to the masses, masses you know, they, they be, ended up being coming part of the mainstream. Um, it became about only about money in some of these places, not originality. I mean, this is certainly what happened to to the big electronic dance clubs. 
Um, and once you know the little hole in the wall places land in the tourist guidebooks, um, they might as well be dead. They lose their uniqueness, and you know they lost their original raison d'être. Still, you say today Berlin is not only the capital of a unified Germany, but of Europe itself. What's the most compelling evidence of that in your mind? Well, certainly that you know when statesmen around the world see a, a problem or a crisis in Europe, uh, they their call their first call is to Berlin and not to you know, say Brussels or Paris. I mean, Berlin is the the strongest economy in Europe by far. It's in the middle of Europe where it you know bridges east and west. Uh, with Donald Trump's election, uh, many observers thought that, that Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, might step into the shoes of um, you know, being leader of the, of the free world. You know, that's not the case. Uh, but, but Germany has set the tone today in Europe. Um, you know, this, because of Germany's past, unnerves many Europeans, too. Uh, but in until Macron's election in France, now, there was no other figure that could possibly uh, get the job done. So just by, by default, um, you know, Germany has moved into this position, which it's, it, it's not really comfortable with, but has assumed anyway. And now, you know, with Brexit underway and Trump in office, you know, Germany is ever more important. You know, the big question facing Germany and Europe is, you know, are, we, are we looking at a solidly European Germany, or are we looking at the emergence of a German Europe? And I'd say right now it's on the edge, and it could go either way. And you say that Berlin's now lofty position and all of the development that has gone into it create a quandary for the city. Define that. Okay. Um, the quandary is that you know, Berlin's you know, intensely political subculture has been instrumental in shaping today's Berlin. Now, that's the thesis of my book. And you know, once the city saw how attractive and successful the creative industries, as they're called, as successful as they were, you know, it jumped to brand Berlin as a creative city and exploit that for all that it was worth. And this resulted in you know, many different kinds of instances of the commodification of art and street art, graffiti art, the influx uh, along with the tourists of businesses and, and people with, with high incomes that started um, a breakneck uh, gentrification, uh, you know, which paradoxically has upped the rents by so much that the artists and the creatives that you know, gave the city its branding and kick-started its rejuvenation, you know, they can no longer live in the same neighborhoods that they, that they originally put their roots down. They're being pushed out and of, their, of their studios, too. And you know, I'm worried that if this continues, that you know, Berlin will just become a you know, faceless, clone European city like, like many, many others. Um, the, the city itself is smothering the taproot that made it original and appealing in the first place. But you also report on grassroots activism challenging mainstream politics and policies. Talk about RYC, Reclaim Your City, uh, with a spirit, that, uh, a spirit that echoes the 1980s. Yeah, well, Berlin remains a city with, with deep currents of radical, critical politics, 
and um, and many interesting new movements and groups that have stepped in to to address the the new new circumstances. And there's a very lively anti-gentrification movement, for example, of which uh, Reclaim Your City is part. It's one of these groups. Um, it combines street art and street politics. It occupies open spaces, not not necessarily whole apartment buildings like the past in the 1980s, but it, for different short, even short durations of time sometimes, it will occupy a, a space and, and turn it into a disruptive artistic happening. And it might, it might just disappear a day or a week or a month later, or perhaps the, you know, the police will shut it down and then they'll have something else happen. You know, they're, they're among the many groups fighting to maintain the kind of urban space that allows for a vital uh, street art. They're, they're, they're actively fighting what they call the zombification of art when businesses are actually, on the one hand, they'll have the graffiti and street art erased from the facades of their building, but then they'll go and commission street artists or graffiti artists to paint uh, their uh, facades or the insides of their businesses or paint, provide a painting or something of the kind that they want and put it where they want it. Um, and uh, that's just one of the groups. Um, there are other groups that fight for tenant rights, social housing, self-organized housing initiatives, <coughs> and, and they've had some successes. Um, you know, the commercialization of Berlin is, is very disappointing, but I think that Berlin still has a lot of fight in it. Um, after all, uh, urban culture in Berlin has survived worse than gentrification. <laughs> The greatest victory for people power was previously a symbol of West Berlin's survival during the infamous communist blockade circa 1948-49. Tell us that story and how it's ended. Yeah, well, that's the story of, of, of Tempelhof Field that had been um, an airport and airspace for one of Berlin's oldest, a small airport that was actually built by the Nazis but then became famous because it was the airport which... Um, functioned as the, through the airlift in which when, when Berlin was in the late 1940s cut off by the Soviet Union and American and British uh, air, air support had to, had to feed the city for, for almost a year. So it went down in Berlin history for, for this event. But basically it was a small uh, urban airport that was too close to housing. It was too loud and it was shut down. And the city really wasn't sure what it was going to do with it. And it's a, it's a space considering the airfield bigger than Central Park in New York City. And as well, it has these, these historical buildings. Uh, and the idea of the city was that they would eventually, you know, turn, you know, sell it to developers and turn it into housing. But Berlin's burger had something to say about that, and a, a petition initiative was started, and uh, Berliners all voted on it, and, you know, a vast majority of, of, of Berliners voted to keep it as a, a kind of a wide-open, do-it-yourself park. You know, there's really nothing there except uh, the runways and lots of open field. And people just you know, climbed over the fence and started building sculptures and uh, freaky miniature golf courses. They have this baseball diamond. Um, some people just lug old sofas in and, and sit there and read for the afternoon. And so they fought. Really, it was a, it was a, it was a, a tooth and nail fight because this is a very, very valuable uh, territory, as you can imagine, and the city really wanted to develop it. But it's right now, it's just still a sprawling park, and um, there's going to be a second round of this battle. But that's signature Berlin. That shows you what Berliners want, how the Berliners want to see their city.
Clearly, Berlin has become a model for other municipalities trying to recover from economic ruin of one sort or another, including Detroit, Michigan. Uh, talk about its initial inquiry in 2011 and the Detroit-Berlin connection that was initiated three years later. Actually, there's a Berlin-Detroit connection that comes way before that, and that's with uh, the advent of the techno scene in, um, in, in Berlin. Uh, the earliest techno came from Detroit, and it was some of uh, Berlin's club impresarios who, who got, uh, got wind of it and then invited these Detroit musicians to come to Berlin and to, to play in their clubs and actually to live in Berlin and, pl and play in the giant techno clubs of the 1990s. So in, in a way, you know, Berlin is, is famous for its electronic uh, dance music, but it, 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 it pinched it from Detroit. And one of these uh, impresarios, the owner of the Trezor Club, Dmitry Hegemann, he looked at Detroit. He thought, hmm, maybe Berlin can give something back to Detroit. And he spent a lot of time going back and forth trying to help Detroit, which is a post-industrial city with lots of vacant spaces and rooms and abandoned factories, etc. It reminded him a lot of West Berlin in the 1980s. And so he's been working a lot with, with Detroit. And um, his, his conclusion is that two things that Detroit needs. One is that in, in, in Berlin, the, there's no curfew and there's no closing hour for bars and clubs. Everything's open all night long, and this has been the case since the 1950s in West Berlin. Um, and in Detroit, everything closes at 2. So he sees the nighttime economy as something that, um, that, that, that Detroit has to take advantage of. And then the second thing is repurposing the old buildings, putting the abandoned factories to use as, as clubs or as you know, great big museums or galleries or many different ideas to kind of fill this space the way that, that Berlin has, to do it yourself, to use what you've got, to try to make something out of nothing. And what do you see as the next steps that Berlin must take to continue being weird, uh, wonderful, successful? Well, I think it goes back to free space and uh, free time. Uh, Berlin has to keep the rents low enough for creative types to live in the city. And this includes also to have affordable studio space. Um, at the moment, studio space is in the same category as a small business or whatever. So uh, a, a landlord can up the rent as much as he would. would uh, there's no rent control for these spaces. And there's a lot of Berlin in housing in the city that also doesn't have you know, serious rent control. So that's the most important thing. Um, I guess the second thing is that there's a kind of special um, insurance that creative types have. Um, I, for example, as a writer, I also have this where I am uh, given affordable health insurance and other kinds of social benefits as, as a creative person. And this is very, very important. This is something huge that distinguishes the, the fate of, of freelancers and creative people in, in Germany with, with, with other places where that's, that's a huge obstacle. I mean, the city tries to do different kinds of things for creative people. They'll fund festivals, and there are, there are a number of different things, but by far the most important is to keep urban space livable and keep it open enough for innovative kinds of projects. Paul Hockenus, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. 
Transplanted American author and political analyst Paul Hockenus is a World Policy Institute fellow and the author of Berlin Calling, a story of anarchy, music, the wall, and the birth of the new Berlin, this year from the New Press. His article in the new WPJ summer issue is The New Berlin, Offbeat, Disruptive, and Imperiled. Also featured in the new WPJ summer issue, Cover Line Justice Denied, you'll find articles about how Egypt's lawmakers codify oppression, why Honduran farmers sued the World Bank for investing in murder, why nature needs legal rights, and much more. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.